This week on the show, contributing to open source beyond software development, bringing TLS 1.3 to the Internet of Old Things, how efficient CAT can be, boost the speed of Unix shell programs in various ways, running FreeBSD VNet shells on AWS EC2 with Bastille and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. ESD Now, episode 466, Cat's Efficiency, recorded on the 27th of July, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show, join the other 30 people up to this point on patreon.com slash bsdnow that give us a little bit into our chip jar or want to remove the ads that uh, they don't want to hear. So check out our various options we have there, and thank you in advance. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. A fresh episode right out of the oven. Well, looking at the heat outside, that's uh, pretty much a given. Uh, we have headlines, and we start with this every time, and this is no different. Contributing to open source beyond software development is another article from Clara Systems, they become regulars over the months and years that we do this. They, well, do, maybe not they years, do write a lot of stuff. They are, yeah, pro pro prolific. And uh, we always like their content because, well, it's very related to the BSD or in this case, open source software development. Okay, let's jump in. So why open source projects need non-developer contributors is the subtitle here. And I think that is very much up the alley of anyone asking, hey, I cannot program or not as good as other people. Can I still help my favorite open source project? Okay, the article goes, let's examine how non-developer contributors enhance user experience, improve bug reporting and influence feature requests, all while becoming advocates and evangelists for your open source project. The cornerstone of any open source project is a rich and diverse community, not the code. Open source projects thrive because of the community built around them. A project's idea, comments, bug reports, forums, Twitter discussions, advocacy, design, documentation, mailing lists, and code contributions all reflect the presence of this community. These contribute to the project's success and assure its long-term sustainability. Building such a community around open source software projects require everyone contributing. Hobbyists, developers, and non-developers, such as technical writers, designers, and community managers to stand on each other's shoulders and not on their feet. That's my addition. Uh, however, non-coding contributions are frequently overlooked and underappreciated in open source initiatives. Let's cover why non-developer contributions should be appreciated and why those contributions help project or help those projects thrive. The community aspects in open source software. Open source embodies the willingness to share and give back to the community. It is defined by the spirit of collaboration, helping out goals, and an interest in playing an active role in improving the world today. Geographical or social interests don't bind this community. Instead, it's just people from various backgrounds who are ready to learn and contribute. The diverse and collaborative nature of open source software benefits the project and rewards the contributors as well. Everyone learns, teaches, gains experience, embraces conflicting perspectives, and practices inclusiveness while innovating. Unfortunately, there is a common and entirely inaccurate misconception that meaningful contributions need coding. The success of any open source project is influenced by far more than the code contributions on GitHub. Every thriving open source project has non-developer contributors, and these contributors are vital for the adoption and success of shaping the project's future. So what are non-code or non-developer contributions? Non-developer no, non, well, non refers to individuals who fill roles and have skill sets that don't involve directly writing code. There are many ways to contribute to an open source project without writing a single line of code. Some of these ways include, take notes here, creating, writing, and editing documentation, creating quick starts, blog posts, videos, and tutorials, organizing, hosting, and managing community events and meetups, Signing up for beta testing, reporting bugs, and submitting feature requests. Answering questions on forums like Stack Overflow, technical subreddits, and so forth. Improving the user experience and interface design. Becoming an advocate or evangelist. Participating in mentorship and co-review sessions. Volunteering opportunities and sponsorship. And many more. I would also add help with the website. There are many more like these, right? Create music. Um, 
These roles are played by your technical writers, UI UX designers, developer advocates, project managers, community managers, hobbyists, and more. Open source is a social and technological movement. This list is just the tip of the iceberg. Oh yes, I'm fairly sure we could find more. So why are non-developer contributors important to open source? As your project grows, it becomes more than just code. You will need awareness and more adoption to sustain that. Without any of this, your project will eventually die out. Many fantastic open source projects have gone out this way. Let's explore some of the ways non-developer contributors shape your open source project. These contributors allow your contributors to bond through hackathons, events, and meetups. They keep the information and questions flowing in your forums. They keep a knowledge base to help people understand the project better. They also promote your project's technology. They help improve the user experience and visually express the project's value and provide financial support for your open source project or even combinations of these. <laughs> if uh, the Clara article here were to summarize, open source projects need more than developers. They need non-developer contributors from various fields like marketing, customer success or enablement, project management and documentation, just like a commercial company does. So they are exploring various other uh, details about some of these, for example, Advocating. Advocacy is all about getting the word out to the world. Workshops, demos, tweets, conferences, and training sessions are a few examples of how advocacy takes place. So your project addresses a need, but the world might not be aware of it. People must be aware of that to use it and be passionate about becoming users who tell their friends, colleagues, and employers about your project. There is also the link to the FreeBSD Advocacy Project. Another issue is reporting bugs, very important, posting workarounds and making feature requests. Most open source software projects have become essential to our day-to-day -day lives. Today, we can't imagine a world without MySQL databases or WordPress. Contributors who report issues and request features determine the next steps in the project's development. There is, well, because bugs are reported, they are resolved, and the quality of the project can be improved through an iterative development process. In many cases, non-coding contributors can also find and share clever configuration workarounds that mitigate the impact of bugs that haven't been fixed yet. Then there's a section about UX design and improvement. Design influences first impressions. It gives your top-notch functionality a human touch by transforming it into a clean, intuitive appearance. A good user experience can increase your project usability and positively influence your user's experience. If you want your OSS project to appeal to a larger audience, you need a style guide with a consistent visual design and designers can help you with that. Community management is another item here. Community management is every OSS project's secret sauce and cuts across every aspect of the project. Different perspectives are introduced into the project as a result of community engagement. Issues can be viewed through numerous lenses and the reporting or the resulting product will be better due to all the different perspectives. Then there's a big section on how to build welcoming open source communities and they list a couple of essential items to achieve this. First, improving the onboarding experience. Anyone who looks at your project for the first time sees the readme file, or it should be written and so it should be written in a clear and engaging manner. Contributors will feel welcomed and excited if you use a warm, pleasant tone and watch a few words or add a few words of appreciation for showing interest in your OSS project. Yeah, that's missing in many uh, of the first time uh, engagements. Sure. Um, then second is listen to feedback and respond to pull requests. People want to be heard. So as your project grows, expect more feedback, pull requests, and issue submissions. Third, acknowledge and reward contributors. Contributors are essential to your open source success. So make them feel valued. You can achieve this in a variety of ways. Reward contributors with swag, such as stickers, hoodies, or t-shirts. You can also retweet or give frequent shout outs to contributors. Create a forum or mailing list managed by a few contributors to highlight contributions such as blog posts, public releases, and important announcements. Or last, create a contributor's file with a list of everyone who has contributed. Oh yeah, for sure. Number four, building personal connections. Creating an ecosystem around your project is just as important as developing the, pro yeah, developing the code and project itself. Thus, it is important to give your project a personal touch. Then there's the code of conduct. Diversity is beautiful, but we are all humans and conflicts will always emerge. To foster cooperation, you must have a zero tolerance policy for harassment and bullying. Uh, ah, oh, I was just for a second misled by Meet the Author and I was reading Benedict and I was like, I didn't read, I didn't write this article, <laughs> but it's another Benedict. I'm, I'm sorry. So uh, definitely check out the whole article now that you have been, uh, the, the, the tongue has been wetted a little bit, I hope. And so definitely think about how you can either contribute or 
give the contributors that you have in an open source project, even if you're also just a contributor, a little bit of thank you or good work or yeah, tips and tricks how to make this whole experience better for everyone. Yeah, it's a really good article. Um, there's, there's like tons of stuff as well you can do. I mean, you could always approach any of, of us from BSD now and ask how you can contribute without code because we're always oh, yes. willing to offer things. Sadly, a lot of the things are a lot of hard work and that's why no one does them. Um, mm. if you saw, if you heard anything in this article, you definitely follow up because there's opportunities for all of these things in every BSD project. Um, and advocacy is always a good way to help out. Next up, we have a post from the old vintage computing research. I feel like there's a word missing after that. Uh, oldvcr.blogspot.com. So it's like vintage computing research. Um, Oh, I don't know how to say this word. Crypto Anasign 2.0. Uh, and Xian? I have no idea. Crypto Project 2.0 <laughs> now brings TLS 1.3 to the internet of old things, except BOS. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and so the, the author, whose name I can't find immediately looking at the sidebar, uh, writes, who says you can't teach an old box new tricks? We did it before and we're doing it again. Crypto Anacene CryptAnk is a TLS implementation for pre-C99 beasts and monstrosities featuring Carl, a simple curl-like utility that serves as a demonstration command line tool and even as a HTTPS over HTTP proxy for suitably configurable browsers. Many operating systems are supported and a number of compilers too. Not only GCC going back to version 2.5 and the EGCS days, but also Clang, MIPS Pro, Compact C, and even a MetroWorks Code Warrior. Now, after a lot of late night hacking, screaming, and unspeakable acts of programming, tons of bugs are fixed, including a long standing big Indian issue on ChaCha Poly, Cha -Cha 20 Poly 1305, and the core has been significantly upgraded such that almost all of the supported platforms now support TLS 1.3. And what are those supported platforms? Well, here's some of them as they were being cruelly whipped to perform like beaten dogs for your entertainment. And I wouldn't have read that if I'd realized it was a picture before I started reading the sentence. It's a picture of all computers. You'll have to look at the article to see it. One of them has an orange screen. It's worth it. Uh, they'll avenge themselves on me eventually, but until then, they'll encrypt their HTTP and they'll like it. The list of shame includes AIX, 4 and 6 plus, SonOS 4 via OS slash MP on Solborn, macOS 9 via Mac, via Power Mac 10, A slash UX 3.1, Irix 6.5 and possibly earlier, Rhapsody slash macOS 10 server v1.2, macOS 10, PowerPC and Intel, next step on HPPA risk and True64 on Alpha, plus more pedestrian choices like Linux and NetBSD on any platform I could find in the house. I develop on Power9 and modern macOS on Intel and Apple Silicon. Contributors have, been, contributors have added support for HP UX, Haiku and Solaris, and there is parcel support for BOS R5 on PowerPC. We'll talk about it at length in a moment. As we demonstrated previously, Carl Connect as a HTTPS over HTTP proxy for those browsers which are suitably configurable, such as Class Iliad 9.34b on macOS 9, allowing them to self-host their own encryption. Uh, so here's a proof of concept, which is getting like a video. I don't know. Um, I don't know what it is. I should have clicked through more of these links when I read the article earlier. Chosen because uh, it doesn't require JavaScript and Class Iliad tunneled through Mac. At power Mac 10 on Mac OS 9 running on the same. Uh, and then there are pictures of web browsers on old computers, which if they're web browsers you have used before will be amazing. And if they're not, they will be great squares. Um, and there's lots of examples going through all of the operating systems that were listed above. But now to the real meat. Um, and it's the, the last one ends with who needs Haiku, right? Well, that's support too. Um, all the supported platforms must pass my internal test suite using real websites with known variations in TLS support and server fussiness and be able to complete a full transaction with all of them reliably and modular timeouts on small machines. If crypto anacene can build on your platform and it can build on a great many platforms already, by this point even in its evolution, it's very likely to just work. You don't need anything other than a C compiler. In fact, you don't even need make a huge stack-linked single compile. Development for this release has actually been in gestation for a while. The site I originally couldn't make happy 
with the then existing TLS 1.3 support was GitHub. It would keep breaking the transmission in the middle. For months, I had put this aside, spinning my wheels intermittently when I tried to think of where the problem lay. In desperation, I did a few weird experiments in curl, like turning the main select loop inside out or uh, running a second read loop inside of it. And after some stumbling around, I could get a full read consistently. The site that then started breaking in 1.3 was freaking lobsters. Thanks, lobsters, for making my code better. Yeah, drop dead. The original problem is that it insisted on RSA, PSS, RSA, I don't know what that is, even when I didn't offer it in the client hello as an acceptable signature algorithm. TLSE, the E is lowercase, the crypto library which cryank is essentially a hard fork, didn't understand or expect this. So I had to add that support and lib2mcrypt apparently doesn't know how to handle a zero salt length either. This would indicate you need to compute it yourself. So I had to add it too. It took a couple of days poring over wiredumps to figure out what was actually going on, especially because of all of the changing nonsense and values. Even after all of this was working, Lobsters via Carl was still broken on Big Endian because it would complain there were no common ciphers if I didn't offer cha cha 20 poly 1305 sha256. Haven't you guys heard of AES 256 GCM sha384? After laboriously vetting the third-party implementations I use, I found the Endian issue in the connecting glue and was able to make it work. Now everything passed on my little Endian Linux Power 9 and my big Endian AIX Power 6. I grant this is a blatant violation of never roll your own crypto, but anyone using CryptAnk in a production environment is stupid and should meditate deeply upon the other bad chases that, choices they've made in their lives. The next two platforms, the next two platforms I tested were BOS, on my 133 megahertz B-Box PowerPC 603 and SunOS4 via OS slash MP on my 36 megahertz Sawborn S3000 Spark Cap. I consider these machines to be my problem children in the B-Box because classic BOS can be very weird and even more so on PowerPC and the Sawburn because Spark can be nearly as alignment finicky as a deck alpha and is probably the lowest spec system that is barely practical with Cryptank. TLSE has some clever ways of monkey patching directly into its own data structures, clever being both a blessing and a curse in this case. And this sort of monkey patching is indeed what was upsetting many alignment sensitive old risk architectures. Parenthetically, this is something that doesn't show up on PowerPC and PowerISA, my standard development platform, because PowerPC handles most misaligned scalar loads and stores and hardware. Another reason I'm a, power P, a pro power PC bigot. For Spark, another very fussy old risk architectures like SGI MIPS, we have no funny alignment, a special mode that manually breaks apart these accesses at the cost of slightly slower performance. This was slow because rebuilding Carl after each change, even with a CPU and L2 cache from an S4100 to close to 15 minutes for an unoptimized build, but the debugging it was easy in DBX because it stopped right at the end of the scene of the foul. And the actual work required to get it functional was only tedious, not complicated. The B-Box was another story. Somewhere in the long interregnum between 1.5 and 2.0, the BOS part port started to rot, probably due to new code paths being involved as the server configurations changed. An interesting example of the latter in this case, unrelated to BOS configuration, is that apparently some installations, cough lobsters, uh, of Nginx currently throw a 500 error if you don't give it a user agent. So now we provide a trivial one. There are two major memory limitations in PowerPC BOS, though one is actually a compiler limitation. Metroworks CC, essentially a command line code warrior on PowerPC BOS limits stack frames to 32K per function. There is no choice about using Metroworks as your compiler because PowerPC B OS executables are preferred executable format binaries. Yes, the same format as code fragment manager executables on classical Mac OS. Other than the brief sorrowful run of GCC under MPW, no open source compiler of the day generated PEF on Mac or anywhere else. So there was no GCC option like that, which substantially emerged for, subsequently emerged for Intel and regular ELF binaries. We get around that with a define uh, big string size and cut this down to get stack frames to fit. That simple, uh, that simple adjustment was sufficient to get 1.5 compiling and at least for a while working 
only if you didn't optimize too much, you were limited to dash 02 with 1.5. MWCC, however, can go up to dash 07, which is quite high. Uh, that should have been a sign to me to look for other potential problems. And by the time I started to get 2.0 up on B on the B box, everything was a mess. Things times out, transactions would appear to abruptly cut out in the middle, and occasionally it would outright crash with a null pointer. When trying to dis when trying to debug it, I discovered that even the F write calls to admit the data to standard output would just plain quit working, even though the data was arriving to spew and sometimes crawl would unexpectedly terminate. The problem turned out to be that things stomped get things getting stomped on in the stack, which wrecked return addresses and variables, bringing us up to the other memory limitation. Up until around R4, BOS had a miserable 256k stack limit total for every thread in the team. Read its process. By R4.5, this is expanded to 64 megabytes, two megabytes of which was allocated for the main thread and the rest divvied up. Add-ons and libraries run in your address space and their allocation count against your heap and stack usage. B claimed that in R5, the main thread will have 16 megabytes of room, which is needed for demanding applications like GCC. But GCC could deal with the low stack capacity, so it's not clear that it was ever, they ever used the extra space. And by the time OpenBOS, the ancestor of Haiku emerged, post R5, the memory map remained unchanged anyway. Threads being threads, there is no protection between individual thread stacks within that 64 megabyte range, and they are free to stomp on each other. Cryptank, Cryank itself isn't multi-threaded, but it's possible and even likely other components loaded into its stress space will be. If the main thread silently goes over two megabytes of stack at any time, then other things can munge the overhanging data since they don't expect anything critical to be there. Cutting stack usage even more by trimming buffers to get got it further for some sites, but was not enough to pass the test suite, all other ports were easily passing, and entirely eliminating other things by moving them onto the heap wasn't enough either. We finally got it to behave was a combination of those paired back buffers, no optimization at all to prevent code warrior from combining or inlining functions that could be that could bloat stack frames, changing to less sensitive library routines that could handle little corruption, <laughs> no f right using write with single characters in a loop and integer file descriptors instead of files, so as much stayed in registers as possible. And finally, sadly regressing to TLS 1.2. It looks like the additional code for TLS 1.3 upsets the apple cart too much. This makes it much slower than it should be, and some transactions will still time out. But it does work and does pass the tests now. I don't know if this affects Intel BOS, as no one has ever sent me patches for it. Unfortunately, it does not affect Haiku, which builds as any other POSIX-y thing, though Haiku is perfectly cromulent crypto anyway. With the two problem children put to bed, the next ports were A slash UX 3.1, my clock trip on my clock chipped Quadra 800, IRIX on a R4400SC Indy, and a 900 megahertz R16000 fuel with V12 DCD, absolute gibberish, uh, AIX4, uh, Apple Network Server 500, and the Mac family, um, Mac OS 10 on Intel and PowerPC, Mac OS on Apple Silicon, Rhapsody Mac OS Server, Power Mac 10, Next Step on PA Risk, and Sake Galaxy 1100, which after all that largely just worked. True64 is the only one that didn't get a workout because my Alpha 164 Alex decided to eat its network card and a replacement is still on order, but I don't foresee any problems now that others work. Note that because Alpha, you still have to pass... Um, um, is aligned to the Compact C compiler. No funny alignment right now, assumes Big Endian, while well, it works for Spark. Um, and that's a great update. You can download the source code on GitHub, and there's a flood gap gopher server with pre-compiled binaries for Sun OS 4.1 and OS slash MP, Rhapsody Mac OS server, Power Mac 10, and PowerPC BOS R5, and the rest have easy to follow instructions. Hey, it's so cool that someone is keeping uh, TLS available for old computers. Oh, yeah. With all the things it had to go through. All of the hoops you have to jump through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's sometimes necessary. The next item we found in News Roundup uh, is how efficient can CAT be? And that is an interesting thing because it mentions the BSD uh, implementation from OpenBSD, but uh, we get to that. So uh, this is over on Ariadne's uh, space, Ariadne.space. 
There have been a few initiatives in recent years to implement new user space-based systems for Linux distributions as an alternative to the GNU core utils and the BusyBox. Recently, one of the authors of one of these proposed implementations made the pitch in a few IRC channels that her CAT implementation, which was derived from OpenBSD's implementation, was the most efficient. But is it actually? Understanding what CAT actually does. At the most basic level, CAT takes one or more files and dumps them to standard out. But do we need to actually use standard IO for this? Actually, we don't, and most comp competent CAT implementations at least use read and write, if not more advanced, approaches. If you consider CAT as a form of buffer copy between an arbitrary file descriptor and standard out file, no, yeah, we can understand what the most efficient strategy to use for CAT would be splicing. Anything which isn't doing splicing, after all, involves unnecessary buffer copies and thus cannot be the most efficient. To get the best performance out of spliced I.O., we have to have some prerequisites. The source and destination file descriptors should be unbuffered. Any intermediate buffer should be a multiple of the file system block size. In general, to avoid doing a stats syscall, you can assume that a multiple of page size is likely acceptable. Okay, so first, a simple CAT implementation. The simplest way to implement CAT is the way that it is done in BSD, using read and write on an intermediate buffer. This results in two buffer copies, but has the best portability. Most implementations of CAT work this way, as it generally offers good enough performance. And they provide the full source code for people who want to read that. It's kind of difficult to understand if I just read it out to you. So uh, we refer you to the article. Here is the next section, implementing Splice.io. Linux has no shortage of ways to perform Splice.io. For our CAT implementation, we have two possible ways to do it. The first possible option is the venerable send file syscall, which was originally added to improve the file serving performance of web servers. Originally, send file requires the destination file descriptor to be a socket, but this restriction was removed in Linux 2.6.33. Unfortunately, send file is not perfect. Because it only supports file descriptors which can be memory mapped, we must use a different strategy when using copying from standard in. And then they provide the implementation using that. Another approach is to use splice and a pipe. This allows for true zero copy I.O. in user space as a pipe is simply implemented as a 64 kilobyte ring buffer in the kernel. In this case, we just use two splice operations per block of data we want to copy. One to move the data to the pipe and another to move the data from the pipe to the output file. And there follows the next implementation with the splicing. Honorable mentions copy file range. So while copy underscore file underscore range is not really that relevant to a CAT implementation, if both the source and output files are normal files, you can use it to get even faster performance than using splice, as the kernel handles all of the details on its own. An optimized cat might try the strategy and then downgrade to splice, send file in the normal read and write loop. There's a small but nevertheless good enough comparison in performance. To measure the performance of each strategy, we can simply use DD as a sync, running each cat program piped into so ddof equals def null, uh, block size 64k, and iflag equals full block, that's a Linux thingy. Uh, the runs in the table below averaged across a thousand runs on an 8 gigabyte RAM Linode using a six or no six four gigabyte file in TempFS. So the simple cat, that's how OpenBSD and the other BSDs do it. And they also have a couple of optimizations there, I'm fairly sure. So that takes uh, or yeah, has 3.6 gigabytes per second. The cat send file one has 6.4 gigabytes per second, and the cat splice has 11.6 gigabytes per second. Oh, that's quite a difference. If you're interested in using these implementations in your own cat implementation, you may do so under any license terms you wish. And if you scroll down a little bit in the article, there's another one uh, commenting that uh, it would be interesting to see how fast cat can go if you optimize the read side too. For example, this blog post shows that a write speed of 65 gigabytes per second is possible. And there's a link to that. That maybe warrants another article, but uh, we leave you with this. So in case you want to optimize your cat, there you go. That's a, that's a cool article. This, uh, the blog post reminded me of a, like a Stack Overflow code golf where someone did yes as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, and they ended up writing like a custom um, SIMD instruction interpreter to generate the output. Which was just absolutely insane. It was, yeah, it's, it's crazy the the lengths that we can twist computers to.
<laughs> um, okay, next up we have an article on techexplore.com, which is covering a news story in a news story way. Um, and it is titled, uh, Technique Significantly Boosts the Speed of Programs That Run in the Unix Shell, and You Won't Believe Reason 5. Um, researchers, researchers have pioneered a technique that can dramatically accelerate certain types of computer programs automatically while ensuring program results remain accurate. Their system boosts the speeds of programs that run in the Unix shell, a ubiquitous program environment created 50 years ago that is widely used today. Their method paralyzes these programs, which means it splits program components into pieces that can be simultaneously run on multiple computer processors. This enables programs to execute tasks like web indexing, natural language processing, or analyzing data in a fraction of their original runtime. There are so many people that use these types of programs like data scientists, biologists, engineers, and economists, and they can now automatically accelerate their program without fear that they will get incorrect results, says Nikos Vasiliakis, research scientist in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, CSAIL at MIT. System also makes it possible, makes it easy for programmers who develop tools that data scientists use. Uh, they don't need any special adjustments to their program commands to enable this automatic error-free paralyzation. Um, and so a decades-old problem, this new system known as PASH, or um, Parallel Shell, um, focuses on programs or scripts that run in the Unix shell. A script is a sequence of commands that instructs your computer to perform a calculation. Correct and automatic parallelization of shell scripts is a thorny problem that researchers have grappled with for decades. The Unix shell remains popular in part because it is the only programming environment that enables one script to be composed of functions written in multiple programming languages. Different programming languages are better suited for specific tasks or types of data. If developer uses the right language, solving a problem can be much easier. People also enjoy developing in different programming languages, so composing all of these components into a single program is something that happens very frequently. While the Unix shell script enables multiple uh, language scripts, its flexible dynamic structure makes these scripts difficult to parallelize using traditional methods. Parallelizing a program is tricky because some parts of the program are dependent on others. This determines the order in which components must, get, must run. Get the order wrong and the program fails. When a program is written in a single language, developers have explicit information about its features and the language and the language that helps them determine which components can be parallelized. But those tools don't exist for scripts in the Unix shell. Users can easily see what's happening inside just the components or extracting information that would aid in parallelization. A just-in-time solution. To overcome this problem, PASH uses a pre-processing step that inserts multiple annotations onto program components that it thinks could be parallelizable. Then PASH attempts to parallelize those parts of the script while the program is running at the exact moment it reaches each component. This avoids another problem in shell programming. It is impossible to predict the behavior of a program ahead of time. I, don't think, I think that's a large assertion. Uh, by parallelizing program components just in time, the system avoids this issue. It is able to effectively speed up many more components than traditional methods that try to perform parallelization in advance. The researchers tested PASH on hundreds of scripts from classical to modern programs, and it did not break a single one. The system was able to run programs six times faster on average when compared to unparallelized scripts, and it achieved a maximum speed up of nearly 34 times. It also boosts the speeds of scripts that other approaches were not able to parallelize. Our system is the first that shows this type of fully collect transformation, but there is an indirect benefit too. The way our system is designed allows other researchers and users in the industry to build on top of the work. Uh, as a drop-in replacement for an ordinary shell that orchestrates steps but does not reorder or split them, PASH offers a no-hassle way to improve the performance of big data processing jobs. Adds Doug McElroy, uh, inventor of uh, standard input and standard output. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, this is really cool. It's a weird article. Uh, I, I I came across needing almost this sort of thing last week, so it's really funny to see it pop up in our show notes. I used Xorgs, but this is cool too. <laughs> yeah, it has its benefits. So know about these things is good um, to kind of get the problem down into further chunks and then maybe try to parallelize it over multiple CPUs if that is actually possible for the current and it, uh, problem. And, and it would definitely help if the thing you were trying to parallelize was um, 
a product. Like if you were given a script that you needed to run as part of a transformation process and you wanted to speed it up by scaling it out and you didn't necessarily know what it did or where the uh, procedural parts of the script were, this could be really helpful. I mean, for me, I, I just wanted to run the same thing on on all 32 cores of my processor, just and, I, and it was fine. And I could handle dividing up the input jobs so they wouldn't overlap. But if you have something you hadn't written, then this looks really promising. There's a, a website for it at binpa.sh. Bin uh, TLS is broken. Uh, binpa.sh, and there's a tutorial showing how you can break up scripts. I would actually link to this when I was doing the XRX thing, but it didn't fit what I needed to do. Yeah, put it in the show notes. We'll oh, link from there. I have to figure out how to copy and paste. Uh, that's uh, a control uh, key and a, and a it, C, It was a I command. Think. It was a command. Oh, it's a command. Okay, it's, then. Well. It's the paste phase into Google Docs. Can you paste into Google Docs yet? Uh, oh, there you is, can. Well, oh, uh, the power in our fingertips. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so while Tom pastes and uh, learns computers, um, I should show you the next item. Running FreeBSD VNet jails on AWS EC2 with Bastille, which is interesting. And we have a four-minute read ahead, according to this article, but we can also skip a couple things. I don't use four minutes. <laughs> so, a lot of his shell scripts. Ah, yeah, yeah, here we go. Sorry. So there is uh, Bastille as a system of managing FreeBSD jails. It aims to make setting up jails easy. AWS EC2 is a cloud infrastructure system run by Amazon for the people who have been living under a rock. Uh, who haven't heard about these. I wanted to try Bastille on AWS, but there was a lack of AWS examples on Bastille's website. I ended up repurposing an old laptop and putting 13.1 on it and getting a VNet jail working with it locally before attempting this on AWS. Clever, because, well, it cost you money trying to get things working. And locally, it doesn't. So, the use case. We have an older FreeBSD 11.1 machine on EC2, which uses OpenConnect and a set of Python scripts to connect to Juniper Pulse, and we need a way to deploy files to it and then connect to this VPN in order to transfer the files to the target machines. At the time I launched the machines, this machine 11.1 was available and I was using a stable AMI. Unfortunately, you can't upgrade these easily. When the VPN connects, it takes over the network stack, setting the DNS server in etc resolve conf and changing the default gateway. This makes it difficult to transfer files out of the machine when it's still connected to the VPN. Enter FreeBSD VNet jails. FreeBSD VNet jails allow you to run FreeBSD's jails with their own network stack that is independent of the hosts. Since 13.1 came out a few weeks ago, uh, they decided to use the FreeBSD's 13.1 release AMI provided by Colin Percival. Thanks for that. I spun up a FreeBSD 13.1 release, t3a.small instance with 2 gigabytes of RAM. Why do I always read megs instead of gigs? Come on, Benedict, we're in the gigabyte area now. Okay. Um, and install Bastille in it. Package install Bastille, that's your command. Normally, uh, they run FreeBSD update fetch install. However, it's too soon after release for any updates yet. It's always a good idea to keep the system up to date with this method, but you must make sure you choose the FreeBSD 13.1 release AMI and don't use any stable ones as they will allow you to run FreeBSD update on them. Okay. Here's the network setup. A modern Amazon, Amazon, Amazon EC2 instance on the ENA driver, which uh, is an enhanced network adapter. There's one caveat with it. It uses jumbo frames. The gel VNet script doesn't exactly support this yet, which they'll get to below. First, let's define what the network looks like. So ENA0 is a 10.xxx network. This is the AWS VPC IP address in an RFC 1918 subnet. There's a host EPER interface, 192.168.50.1, and a gel EPER interfa uh, interface, 192.168.50.2. Okay, so host and uh, gel talk about this EPER, or with each other, <laughs> not about it, with it. I chose a fairly simple 192.168.50.0.24 network for the jail. It has to be different than what ENA0 has. Okay. Setting up configuring the jail on Bastille, and I attempted to bring up the VNet jail as per Bastille's instructions, link to the website. The jail failed to run. When Bastille starts a VNet jail, it creates two E pairs and then it renames them from E pair 0A to E 0A underscore Bastille 0 and E pair 0B to E 0B underscore Bastille 0. However, the jail creation never got that far due to errors. 
Uh, then they noticed the message in the kernel. So it says invalid MTU, 15,000 is not equal 9,001. And that's what they described earlier. So they were left with E pair 0A and 0B, and even sometimes E pair 1A and E pair 1B, um, when starting this multiple times. But the local use local bin JIP script, which gets copied from user share examples jails, does not set the MTU of the E pair interface. So the default to MTU of 15,000, which does not match an ENA0 of the ENA0 bridge interface, which the interface which uses MTU of 9001. And then they hacked up uh, that script, the JIP in user local bin, and edited line 3, 309 to say, well, if config e pair create MTU 9000, else uh, return. So this is just hacking this into a working order. Okay, very nice. Then they could create the Bastille jail, aptly named Alcatraz, because why not? This has been done a while, uh, going on for a while even. Um, I hope we don't run out of jail names soon. As soon uh, as that was done, they added the uh, Alcatraz config file to add a pre-start to actually do the, or pre-stop even, to remove this. That ensures the host side of the ePair04 sets the interface to an IP address of 192.168.50.1 so that each uh, knows about the other. Uh, for some reason, the jail doesn't properly detect the default gateway, so we needed to set this in rc.conf uh, with, e with uh, default router equals the IP address. Okay. Most, uh, then they described the host's pfconf and other configs. That is typically block everything first and then let single individual connections out again because this is, well, on the hostile internet, and as soon as you have an AWS instance spun up, everyone starts scanning and trying to break in and does bad things about it. But PF, typically, with a good configuration, PFConf will help you there and protect you. Then they added a couple of extra lines to make PF working and PFLog enable, the usual things. And last but not least, you run sysrc bastille enable yes, and sysrc bastille list, the list of jails you want to run, in this case Alcatraz, and if you followed these steps and there have been no errors, you should now have a fully functioning 13.1 release VNet jail on your Amazon EC2 system. Very cool. Sorry, sorry, Benedict, I was attacked by a cat. You were attacked by, yeah. So Tom is actually cat sitting at the moment. And that's why we aptly chose the title for this uh, episode. That's totally what it was. Yeah, I mean, he decided he decided to come and join us here, but I'll, I'll tweet a picture of the cat so that oh, excellent. cat tags will be paid. People love uh, cat pictures. I, and he seems bored now. I mean, as long as he only attacks me when, I mean, I, he's just walking around. He walked into the microphone a few times and it's large for Benedict. As long as it only happens when Benedict's speaking, it's fine. If it happens when I'm speaking, JT will be annoyed because JT told me off. More uh, cutting. Anyway, so, so next up, uh, it's time for the beastie bits, we little things that crawled into our show notes. And first up, we have Game of Trees release 0.74. Here comes a cat. Yep. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> Here we go. There's a, oh, there's a tail. Um, I can't. Well, don't <laughs> let cat be cats. If it, if it was do, my cat, I would do cat things. so like, it's so timid. It's not... It's not turned off by our show, right? Our recording doesn't actually scare it he's away. Been, he's been asleep most of the time because, you know, cat. Okay, so uh, this is on the OpenBSD journal, uh, contributed by Gray from the new key bindings, yet familiar for users of VI and less is more department. For those who've been paying attention to the Game of Trees development list, there's been a lot going on with GOT. Apologies here at Undeadly for having missed some release announcements. Having written as much, GOT 0.74 was released on the 14th of July, 2022. Release notes may be found here, gameoftrees.org slash releases slash changes. The dash portable release also got some attention, and those release notes may be found on the portable change log. Though not exhaustive, here are some things that caught my attention out of the many improvements. Create and verify tags signed by SSH keys. Make the diff algorithm used by tog diff and tog blame configurable for 0.73. Switch tog diff and tog blame to Myers diff by default for speed. Uh, for Linux, no, it's cat. <sighs> for Linux, fix usage of pipe during SSH signing and verification. At Portable, the libexec handlers now support capscom on FreeBSD, which is similar to OpenBSD's pledge syscall. 
um, the got init command to change, move the got init command to got admin init, uh, regress t, regress test ssh key regress test ssh key revocations. This is a hard sentence. Uh, add missing revoked signers to grammar to got. Uh, tog uh, implement global s key map switch to switch split mode. Lots of stuff. Oh, oh yeah, that's gone. And now I have the title melody stuck in my head for the rest of this episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> more news from OpenBSD. Current has moved to 7.2 beta uh, with the following commits linked there. Theodorat from uh, the here we go again department <laughs> moved current to version 7.2 beta. This is on uh, deadly, by the way. Uh, here we go. Log message reads, move to 7.2 beta. This gets done very early to avoid finding out version number issues close to release. So snapshots are already available for several platforms. Regular readers will know what comes next. This is served as an excellent reminder to upgrade snapshots frequently, test both base and ports, and report problems. Plus, of course, donate. Excellent. That's one thing everyone should do to support OpenBSD and the other projects they do, like OpenSSH, for example, right? Okay, so next good. up we have, oh, sorry, yeah. No, no, that was Next up we have a post on itnext.io, a Unix command line crash course. And rather than read this to you, I'll just give you the highlights. Um, they tell you how to work with files and directories, uh, and they show you the list command, ls, the change working directory command, cd, um, touch and make dir uh, to make files and directories, um, the man pages to help you find more information, cat for our favorite activity, catting things together, seeing how quickly we can go, echo to display text, um, how to figure out where commands are located using which um, and how to find the path, and environment variables showing you where things are configured inside the shell. And, and that's that. That's a great, really short 12 minute introduction that covers um, a little bit of living in the, in the terminal so that you can get a bit ahead of the, the tools you might have been shown. I could do with one of these for MS-DOS, but I don't have one, so <laughs> I always struggle. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's a good introduction. Mm -hmm. And if this episode has too much cat content for you, we also have something from bsd.doc. They posted their <laughs> VimRC on bsd.doc. Yeah, well, it's what it is, right? We have to it's balance great. the, the forces out. that run the world. <laughs> My fiance would kill me if a dog appeared. <laughs> yeah, that's next time. Um, so they posted a VimRC and they named it the best VimRC in the universe. And so that's on GitHub. And what is bsd.doc VimRC, they say? First, it was OpenBSD only, but I added a single config file. I has different vimrc and .xrc files for different OSs. It wasn't okay. Thus, I've mixed them up in one single file. As a result, some of the configurations may not be your cup of tea. T being T-E-E, -E, right? Get it? The, the program? Yeah. Okay. So feel free, feel free, or oh, feel free, yeah, to ditch them out. There are two versions of each file, both vimrc and xrc, with and without comments. Uh, they prefer the latter and to RDFM and STFW. Uh, well, okay. Um, what is there? They have features listed as 72 characters per line. Indentation is an eight character tab. Language switching, uh, okay, between English, Russian, etc. And oh, even Persian, even. Oh, cool. Uh, short keys, functions for saving, disabling automatic indentations for external pasting. Uh, LTL language switch, RTL language. Oh, left to right, right to left. Here we go. That's why it is. Um, reset to default after F6, OpenBSD, and F6 and F7 for FTP. Okay. Uh, OpenBSD style with F6. Oh, that's that could be useful. FreeBSD, FTP, replace spaces. And, ah, here, documentation project. Why, why, why do I have to ask what FTP means? Um, so... FreeBSD's FTP does it replace spaces with tabs and on F7 and F8 press does rewrap paragraphs. Miscellaneous has a beautiful status bar, CLI and GUI compatible, Windows compatible and other cool things. I just leave you to it. And uh, thanks for this WIMRC. I will definitely steal the best parts of it for my own. It, it took me a while to figure out what STFW means, but I, I finally figured out it's SSH to FreeBSD workstations. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay. 
Okay, last up, we have uh, a wiki page, which has appeared on the FreeBSD wiki this month, and it is FreeBSD speedruns. This article documents FreeBSD setup speedruns. Speedruns recorded by community members in various categories. FreeBSD speedruns are intended to be fun exercises for community members to test their skills, encourage constructive competition, interaction, and to share FreeBSD with the world. Not as perfectly accurate or precise competitions, Having said that, there are some basic rules to reduce variability and encourage consistent and reproducible speedruns by whatever by others wherever possible, but we prefer people to create speedruns over not running them due to lack of resources or hardware. Zero to desktop, oh, speedrun categories, zero to desktop. The zero to desktop FreeBSD speedrun category records the time taken from the first boot of a FreeBSD image through installation to the display of a desktop environment's wallpaper. The basic rules for this category are uh, must be manual and unscripted. No additional or custom tooling may be used to assist the speedrun. Speedrun must use an unmodified project-provided release image. Uh, record the entire process uncut and unmodified, including pre-boot sequences showing initial boot to installer. Um, must use official package mirrors to keep everything nice and slow. Uh, timers may be used either physical, a visible device's recording, or virtual clock overlays. Speedrun recordings must be hosted and publicly visible, such that we can link to them on YouTube or similar. Speedrun recordings must contain the following information to specify the configuration. Um, this should be in, in the video metadata rather than overlays in the video. Uh, CPU brand, model, guest, host, number of cores, frequencies, memory type amount, storage, type size, controller, driver. Video brand model type desktop environments used the desktop environment used in the speedrun, and there are five speedruns on the wiki page right now. Um, two from Hello Robo Robo, uh, one from Gary J Hares, uh, Steph R seventy seven, and Robo Noogie. and three of these are KDE five, uh, with the fastest being six minutes fifty five seconds, and the Hello Robo Robo ones are to Ice WM, and the fastest one is five minutes seven seconds, and so we were talking about ways to get involved early in open source projects without writing code. And this is a great way to get involved because you can install stuff and post it on social media. And I was involved in the like Twitter threads talking about this, and it was really interesting to see people's ideas for what to do for a speed run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is another way to contribute and make he, maybe someone else uses this and runs FreeBSD and sets it up in half the time. Uh, at this point, we insert uh, in the show notes a very sad uh, emoji with one tear on one eye because no feedback and questions this week. But we're also quite full already as an episode goes. So I think we can skip this part here, but we will have another uh, next time we will record, which is next week. So stay tuned for that one. And we hope you enjoyed this episode here with a lot of cat content in it both uh, in the episode and uh, in the recording studio, at least for, for Tom. The cat will be here for the next one. So uh, sure excellent. More of it. He's <laughs> the in the window right the now. Cat. He doesn't understand windows, but he's in the window. Okay, yeah, they, they keep watching uh, things outside. Excellent. So we're back next week and till next time.